Welcome to Viewpoint, a TD Securities podcast. Listen in as we draw perspectives from a variety of thought leaders on key themes influencing markets, industries, and the global economy today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Happy to be here. Yeah, our, our Canadian banks, uh, unlike U.S. banks, when a mortgage is underwritten, for the most part, it's kept on the balance sheet. It's not securitized or sold the way it's done in the U.S. In fact, mortgages on the, let's just look at the Canadian balance sheets, so ignoring their U.S. operations, mortgages are close to 50% of all the loans. And that's an awfully big part of the picture. What's also, I think, important is, although the margins on mortgages are somewhat lower than they would be on credit cards, the loss rates on mortgages are very low. And the capital ratio that the, or rather the capital requirements on mortgages are relatively low. And as a consequence, mortgages, I think, can be one of the more important drivers of bank ROEs. And, and I'd say mortgage losses have been low for so long and mortgage growth has been strong for such a long period of time that it's been an important driver of our bank's uh, higher ROEs. And it's important to note our banks generate ROEs that are as much as four to 500 basis points higher than their U.S. peers. And I think in a, in a very real way, the large mortgage market plays a role in driving that higher ROE for our Canadian banks and higher ROE often leads to a higher valuation. And I think that's part of the picture, especially when you compare our Canadian banks to the U.S. banks. Well, in Canada, the majority of mortgages are five-year fixed mortgages. Probably about a third of our mortgages would be variable mortgages as well. Uh, but the five-year fixed mortgage is a staple in Canada. In the U.S., they take a lot more. Uh, the bank takes a lot more interest rate risk. They write thirty-year mortgages. And that's one of the reasons why U.S. banks tend to securitize a significant amount of their mortgages. They don't want all that interest rate risk on their balance sheet. So that, that's the way to look at our Canadian banks. They've got uh, probably 70% fixed rate mortgages, 30% variable rate mortgages. Five-year renewal periods are very, very common. And that really is an important uh, attribute for our Canadian banks. It allows them to limit some of the interest rate risk associated with, with their mortgages. The five-year renewal is also very relevant because if you write a mortgage in year one and interest rates change significantly from year one to year five, the mortgagee will find themselves with significantly different mortgage payment down the road. And that's even true in the case of variable rate mortgages, because in, in a case of a variable rate mortgage, your mortgage payment doesn't change. Uh, in most circumstances, doesn't change until renewal. And that's become one of the really big issues that myself and other industry observers are trying to deal with right now, 
how do we look at the mortgage landscape in the context of materially higher interest rates? And that's, again, one of the big issues that I'm focused on. Well, coming to that, Mario, I, I've heard that a lot. And, and what are some of the risks that we should be aware of for um, the banks, but also for the health of our consumers? As rates do move higher with these variable rate mortgages, what happens in terms of the servicing requirements for those mortgages? And what do we see in terms of some of the payments that Canadians could be faced with um, going forward? I'm going to discuss this in the context of variable rate mortgages, but this applies to uh, a fixed rate mortgage at renewal as well. Let's think March 2020 and even throughout parts of 2021 when rates were much, much lower than they are right now. If you were fortunate enough to get into a variable rate mortgage, then you might have got into that mortgage at around 145 basis points, 150 basis points. So 1.5%. That is a very, very low mortgage rate. As rates rise, as they certainly have over the last year or so, your mortgage payment doesn't change. That, say, $2,000 monthly mortgage payment that you have will remain unchanged as rates move higher, but something has to give. And what gives in that case is the amount of principal that your $2,000 mortgage payment is covering. Let's assume just for simplicity, it was covering $1,000 of principal and $1,000 of interest. As rates increase, what you'll find is that the mortgage payment, that same $2,000 mortgage payment is only covering, call it $500 monthly of principal and the other 1,500 is going toward the interest. You can certainly see a scenario where rates continue to rise to the point where the borrower, the borrower's payment, the $2,000, isn't covering anything but interest. What you then, of course, will see is a period where the amortization, the remaining amortization of the mortgage goes well beyond 35 years. And that's precisely what we saw when the banks reported their Q3 results. One of the most important things I was focused on as the banks reported it was checking how much of their mortgages now have remaining amortization periods in excess of 35 years. It's important to know that in the last couple of quarters, that number was low single digits, call it 5%. It's now close to 20%. 20% of the bank's mortgages are now have amortization periods of 35 years or more. So what does all this mean? At some point when those mortgages mature, and, and there are circumstances where it could happen sooner than the renewal date. But at, certainly at renewal, the mortgagee will find that their payment has to increase significantly. And, and we could be looking at increases in their mortgage payments of 30%. So that $2,000 becoming $2,600, that's a big number. And, and I don't think that investors and the banks have to worry about that here in the near term. In the near term, there could be some pressure on the marginal borrower. The more important issue is, is 2025, 2026. And I picked those two years because that's about five years uh, past the 2020 and the 2021 periods when mortgage rates were extremely low. So there is uh, a risk here down the road that significant uh, renewals of mortgages will play out where the borrower's payment increases by more than a marginal amount. And what I think we have to prepare for is that interest rates may not be this high in 2025 or 2026. So we don't know what the world will look like in a couple of years. We don't know whether mortgage payments will truly have to increase that much. Uh, and in fact, one could argue that if, if this quantitative tightening that we're seeing right now results in a recession, it won't be long before we're cutting rates again in fact, some economists are calling for uh, 
central banks around the world to start cutting rates as early as mid to late 2023. So while I'm painting a picture of significantly higher mortgage payments coming down the pipe in 2025-26, we really don't know. Uh, mortgage rates could change significantly between now and then. Well, not really. Each time we ask a bank that question about uh, any kind of change in their underwriting philosophy, most banks will say, no, we like to underwrite with the same underwriting principles through the cycle. Uh, my inclination is that OSFI, the, the regulator for our Canadian banks, will occasionally introduce underwriting standards that appear a little bit more strict. I'll, I'll give you an example. The banks have had to stress test borrowers at a mortgage rate 200 basis points higher than the rate that they, the bank was offering. So say a bank was offering a 2% mortgage, the borrower had to qualify for that mortgage under debt servicing ratios at about 4%. That's the sort of thing that happens across the banking landscape. We tend to get changes in underwriting standards, but it's done more at, a, at the macro level by OSFI. The banks themselves, they, they may very well apply different types of standards and underwriting standards. It's not something that we see externally. The closest thing to that is what I just described, where, where OSFI changes uh, certain qualifying rules. Another thing that, that sort of along the same lines is as bank funding costs moves higher, and we're seeing wholesale funding costs and deposit costs increase for the banks, the banks have an important decision to make. Will they uh, increase rates significantly to protect that margin? Or will they let some of that business uh, roll off the balance sheet because they don't think it's done at a particularly strong enough margin? I think that's a decision our banks will be making over the next little while. Uh, protect the margin or maybe give up some market share if they don't think that the margins are good enough. I think those are the considerations we'll see the banks um, put in place over the next little while. At the beginning of 2018, the banks had to put in place something called IFRS 9. IFRS 9 has the banks look at their performing loans. These are loans that are good. Nothing's wrong with them. And they have to make an estimate as to the 12-month expected losses on those performing loans. And so the way you go about do that is you look at the health of the consumer, GDP growth, interest rates, housing starts, housing values. You look at all the macro factors, inflation, employment, everything. And you have to take a, essentially a guess at the extent to which those performing loans will result in losses over the next 12 months. And what we saw this quarter from the Canadian banks is that they put aside very little in the way of performing loan reserves. Uh, now, they were already holding significant reserves from the past, but there were no, there was very modest additional provisions that they booked on those performing loans. So I'm not suggesting that our banks are perfect forecasters of future credit losses. There's not enough evidence for me to say uh, that they are or they aren't, because as I said, this standard only came about in 2018. But I do rely on the banks. I believe that the banks are better forecasters and they have more information than the market at large. And the banks themselves don't see significant new losses emerging on these performing loans. As I said, they're already holding strong reserves, 
but they didn't book a lot of new like additional reserves this quarter. And that gives me some confidence that the banks aren't seeing a lot of problems on the horizon. I know the market, given where valuations are, the market certainly believes there are losses coming, but the banks themselves haven't started to book that. Other sort of related indicators that I care about are delinquencies. Are we seeing delinquencies start to rise? Not really. Uh, there might be some modest move in delinquencies, but still very, very low. Uh, gross impaired loan formations, are, or what we refer to as the GILs. These are loans that in the quarter became impaired, where we become a little more concerned that that borrower may not be able to pay. So gross impaired loan formations also remain low. That's the sort of thing I care about, deposits. Like if deposits remain really healthy, and they have been, that also gives me some confidence that consumers have a lot of liquidity on hand. Uh, unemployment rates remain really low. I think the bottom line on credit is I know very well that this very low level of credit losses, and I think credit losses right now are running at about half their normal level. I know very well that that's going to return to normal at some point, but there isn't evidence to support uh, the idea that we're going into a credit cycle yet. I appreciate that the market has a different view right now. When our banks trade down to nine times forward earnings, which is where they're at right now, the market is clearly sending a signal that they believe there is a credit cycle coming. But based on what I've seen and what the banks have booked so far, it does not appear that one is coming in the here in the near term. So I still take the view that credit's going to normalize in 2023. We're going to go back to say 35 basis points of credit losses up from the 15 basis points we're seeing today. But I'm not building in a, a credit cycle where our credit cycle would be loss rates of say 65, 75 basis points. I'm not there yet. Yeah, like payment trends on credit cards are sort of interesting. If people stop paying off their, their credit card balances on a, a more regular basis, that matters. Uh, increases in delinquencies, gross impaired loan formations, an increase in unemployment, all the big macro pictures. Those are the things that I really care about. And so far, they're just not there. But yeah, it's the big macro pictures. You know, I am sensitive to what we're seeing the Federal Reserve and the Bank of Canada doing. We had a lot of quantitative easing during the pandemic. It made sense. Uh, the Fed balance sheet now is just $4 trillion larger than it was before the pandemic. That That's intimidating to look at because as the Fed drains all that liquidity out of the market, we're going to see deposit balances start to shrink in, in the U.S. And, and somewhat in Canada as well. So there certainly is a precursor to the losses emerging. And those are the things I care about, the things I'll be looking at. I just haven't seen it. It hasn't had the, the effect yet, but no doubt, one of the things I'm really watchful of is what is the Fed going to do in terms of that very, very large balance sheet? How abruptly are they going to return that balance sheet back to the, the $4 trillion balance sheet we had before the pandemic? Because aggressive action by the Fed could create the recession that creates the big credit losses. We're just not there yet. Interesting question. So housing values, does it matter? So remember that 
of our mortgages in Canada, probably a third, maybe even 40% are government insured. So in theory, and just as a reminder to the listeners that if you're not able to put down at least 20% uh, down payment when you buy a home, you have to get mortgage insurance. And about 30, maybe 40% of mortgages are government insurance. I'm not as sensitive to those. The other mortgages, the other say 60, 65% of mortgages are uninsured mortgages. Now in, in that case, that's a scenario where the borrower had more than 20% put down. So the loan to value is less than 80%. Housing values have gone straight up over the last few years. And I know more recently we've seen it check back, but the average loan to value for our Canadian banks and their mortgages is still extremely low. And we're looking at loan to values of about 50, you know, 55%. Now I know the more recent mortgages, certainly the more recent mortgages, we wouldn't have loan to values of 55%. For the majority of mortgages out there, we're still looking at very low loan to values. So the level of deterioration in housing prices to make me worry that the, the collateral would not be sufficient for the banks, it seems a little unlikely right now. We'd have to get far more deterioration in the value of homes to start threatening that loan to value. That's true in the case of mortgages that have been outstanding for a, a longer period of time. Remember, two things happened. The value of the house has gone up over time and the and the debt has gone down as they've paid it down. So that's those two factors is what causes loan to values to decline so abruptly. What I'm a little bit more sensitive to is the significant mortgage growth we saw in 2020 and 2021, because a lot of mortgages were added on the balance sheet then and housing values are down. So there, it, it's really the most recent mortgages that were written that are going to cause the most headache. And I think the headache is 2025 and 2026, as we spoke about before. But for a significant majority of mortgages on the books, the loan to values remain extremely low. Not really. Um, the condo and the housing and the single family housing market, there are periods when the prices diverge, but for the most part, uh, I don't try to make a big distinction there. I, I do pay a lot of attention, however, to the growth that the banks report in Toronto and Vancouver. And some of our banks are very clear in uh, providing disclosure for Toronto and Vancouver distinctly from the other parts of the country. And what you'll find is that a significant amount of mortgages are written in Toronto and Vancouver. And, and I'm sensitive to that area because that's where we're likely to see the greatest housing price pressure. So far, what we've seen is that loan to values in those two regions remain pretty low. But no doubt, I think those are the two areas that Toronto and Vancouver, the two areas that I'm probably the most sensitive to, especially as we approach 2025 and 2026. But I, I don't make a very big distinction, say, between condos and, and single family. Uh, over the long term, the trends tend to be very similar. Thanks, Amy. 
Thank you for listening to Viewpoint, a TD Securities podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to this series on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast platform. For more thought leadership content, visit tdsecurities.com and follow us on LinkedIn for all the latest TD Securities updates. For relevant disclaimers to this podcast, please refer to the Viewpoint episode page on our website.